Well, good morning and hello, Compass. It's so good to be here with you. Mary and I have so looked forward to being with you and once again to see what the Lord is doing in this place, in this church, through this pulpit, and uh, through all the ministries of this church and, and, and now Compass Bible Institute, just to, to revel in what God's doing in this place. I'm so thankful you are here at this church at this hour. I'm also just thankful this church is right here for this generation, right here in Orange County, uh, to the glory of God. I'm so thankful for your pastor. Mike Fabares is, I think, one of the most faithful pastors we found anywhere in America. And uh, I, I can sense right now that you know the rare gift that this church has uh, in him. It, it is such an assurance to know that in this pulpit and from this church comes truth. And uh, truth is now heard all over the world. And that is something for which Christians must be unspeakably thankful because the airwaves are filled with untruth. Our society is a uh, circus of untruth. That's the kindest word I can think of it on this Lord's Day morning. It's a circus of untruth. And so to penetrate that world with God's truth is just an amazing thing. And what a stewardship we share. Uh, and I, I just want you to know that we think of you often uh, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians as he writes and says, I thank God upon my every remembrance of you. That's the way I feel about compass. So God bless you. And we have the privilege this morning of turning to the Word of God. In the book of Jude. We normally say this book, this chapter, this verse, Jude is one chapter. And it's not even called chapter one. Because if you got one chapter, you don't even have to number it one. It is a letter. It was written as a letter. We receive it as a letter, not only from Jude, but from the Holy Spirit. And we will read it together. Looking just at the first few verses, beginning at the very beginning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The older I get, the heavier a text like this weighs on me. And, and frankly, that's true for almost every text of Scripture. The older I get, the more I recognize that at every point in my life, I am continuing to learn as a student of Scripture. I, I'm continually surprised by Scripture. No matter how many times I've read it, no matter how many times I've taught it, even written commentaries, there's always something new and fresh that comes from the Word of God. The older I get, the more I recognize that I need reading glasses in order to read <laughs> the Word of God. In the earlier service, I tried for a moment to go without it was not a successful operation. I should have learned this long ago, but because of pride, we, uh, we try to hide these things from ourselves. Mary and the kids were with me one time when the kids were kids. We were in St. Louis, and I was preaching, and I did not use my reading glasses. And uh, I didn't turn just one page as I was turning the Bible. I, I turned evidently several pages, and the subject shifted from prayer to circumcision with no obvious... <laughs> with no obvious explanation whatsoever. And, uh, and our daughter was then about 14 years old, Katie, now the mother of our grandchildren, and she and 
Riley are raising those little boys in the nurtured admonition of the Lord, and one day her children will say something like this to her. But Katie was about 14, and just out of the pure sweetness of her heart, because she loves me so much, she said, Dad, why didn't you put on your glasses to read the Bible? And I said, because wearing the glasses makes me look old. And she just ate a couple of french fries and then said, well, Dad, not using them makes you look illiterate. So <laughs> this is, uh, this is, this is, <laughs> Oh, old is better, I'll just own old. <laughs> but we need word. We need a word from God. We desperately need a word from God all the time. But as God's people meet together, we desperately need a word from the Lord. And we need to look at it carefully. We, we, need, to, we need to look at it with extreme care. And sometimes we have to look at it almost microscopically just to be able to make sure that we're understanding what is happening here. The background to our reading of this text this day is the fact that Christians from the very beginning of the Christian church, even when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you think about it, Jesus having said that in Matthew chapter 16, we understand he had to say it. Because the forces of hell would be directed against the church. The only reason the church survives is because the, the, the Lord keeps his church. And the gates of hell, even death itself, shall not prevail against it. The church in every generation has faced the responsibility of maintaining the Christian faith. And if you just consider what it is to drive around Orange County on, on any typical day, just imagine how many false gospels you see represented by different organizations, institutions, even call themselves churches. You, you are surrounded by a mass of theological confusion which is not limited to Orange County, California. The whole United States, and furthermore, the world. Even as we read it in a biblical perspective, we come to understand that the world is a giant seething cauldron of untruths. And the responsibility of the Christian church is to maintain Christian truth, even as we read in this passage, to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This particular verse, which reminds us of the urgency of this charge, comes to us in a fascinating context. Look at the, look at the letter and how it begins. Let's just remind ourselves that perhaps you have on your Bible, over the, the name of Jude, the author of this particular book, perhaps you have the word epistle, which is just a, the Greek word for letter, or maybe it says letter. But you know, a letter is a particularly intimate and personal kind of communication. And then, by the way, this is a little footnote, we are losing something as a culture when we do not write one another letters. Emails and letters are not the same thing. Texts and letters are not the same thing. I am able to pull out of a file behind my desk letters that my great-grandfather wrote to me, and I never met him in this life. But when I was a newborn all the way until I was three, even as he was infirm and unable to travel, and we were unable to travel to him, my great-grandfather wrote me letters that are precious to me. 
this letter is precious to the church. This is not just any letter. It's not just a letter from Jude to Christians. It is a letter by Jude the Apostle, which means it is a letter that comes from the Holy Spirit to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the 66 books of Holy Scripture. But it is a letter. It comes in a very personal form. He begins by identifying himself as was the tradition in letter writing in the first century. But notice very carefully how he introduces himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now we can read right over that very quickly. Okay, so this is Jude. He's the brother of James. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. Now we can move on. No, don't move on. Stop. Because we have to think for a moment. Something should jump out at us here, but you have to think about it in order to recognize what it is. This is one of the most moving and humbling introductions from an apostle as he identifies himself in his writing to the church. Now, it's, it's got so much in it to just consider the fact he identifies himself first as a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant. Now, that's really important. That's one of the most essential New Testament words about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be a servant. And then there are servants who are called to serve other servants, and they're identified as those who are given the teaching responsibility, and they hold the teaching office. They are servants of the word. But, but Jude here identifies himself more than anything else. What he wants us to know is he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now we need to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is not merely a name. It is a declaration. It, it's a truth claim. Because Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. The Christos, the Christ, is the Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one promised to Israel. The king who will reign forever on David's throne. That's a lot to say, that's, uh, that, but that's his name because it's a title. This is to say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the everlasting king who will reign on David's throne forever. I am his servant. Putting Jesus Christ together is one of the most powerful revelations to the Christian church because it puts together the saving work of Christ and his eternal everlasting rule. That king, that savior, Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, well, who's James? Why would he say that? Why would he identify himself as the brother of James? Well, for one thing, in the background to this letter, it could very well be that the first people who would read this letter would be in the church in Jerusalem. That would make sense. And the, ap the apostolic leader in the church in Jerusalem is the titanic figure of James. James, the author, of course, of one of the letters in the New Testament. James, as we know from the book of Acts, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the church started. So the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem is James. And he's not just a pastor, he's an apostle. But what else do we know about James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. Think about that. If Jude is the brother of James, and James is the half-brother of Jesus, then Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't identify himself that way directly. Instead, he identifies himself as related to Jesus Christ by being his servant. How sweet is that? 
Everybody who received this letter would know that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. But that is not how he wants to be known. Isn't it amazing? One of the interesting things that is disclosed in the New Testament is how the brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers of Jesus, went from unbelief to belief. You see in the Gospel of Matthew, they're confused about who he is. But after his death, burial, and resurrection, James and Jude become not only followers, not only servants, but apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who identifies himself as the brother of James, the servant of Jesus Christ. He's writing this letter. He identifies himself in order that the church would know who he is and through whom the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church. He identifies himself, but then he identifies his audience. To whom is he writing? Look at the second part of verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. One of the bad evangelical habits related to Scripture is that we become familiarized with certain biblical forms and structures, and so we pass over them too quickly. We are expecting, when there's a New Testament letter, that the Holy Spirit-inspired author of the letter is going to identify himself, and then there's going to be a greeting to the church. If you are looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, he speaks to the church at Philippi. Same thing in other letters. But look at exactly how Jude identifies the church to whom he's writing. That means us. How does he define the church? There are three dimensions here, very quickly, and it's just in the last half of the first verse. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Wow. Here's what he says. He says that the church is made up of those. And there's a sequential order here. And it's very important. There's nothing here is an accident. For those who are called, what does that mean? It means that those who are Christians are those who are the call. This is the doctrine of calling. It refers to the doctrine of election. It points to the doctrine of effectual calling. And we understand from the New Testament that this is both an outward and an inward call. The outward call is the presentation of the gospel. It's the preaching of the word of God. It's what I'm doing right now. This is the outward call. It's a, it's a spoken, declared call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The outward call takes the form of a, a Christian witnessing to a non-Christian, telling them about Jesus, sharing with them the gospel. That outward call comes even sometimes just from the scripture, a, a, a copy of the scripture left in the drawer of a bedside table in a hotel, and someone pulls out that Bible, and not even intending to have a life-changing experience, opens and perhaps begins reading in the gospel of John, and the next thing you know, that outward call of the gospel has come from the scripture itself. It can come over the airwaves at times. It can, it can come in very different forms. The point is the church has learned in many and various ways to be faithful in declaring the gospel in that outward call. And the outward call is absolutely necessary. The, no one's going to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ by intuition. No one is going to logically or rationally reason to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's just really important to note. So no one is going to come to the gospel who doesn't hear the gospel. No one's going to come to Christ who doesn't hear the preaching or the telling of Jesus Christ. But there's that inward call that explains how it is that a sinner opens the heart to believe. That, that, that's the mystery of that inward call. And 
we sometimes call it illumination, when all of a sudden it's like that light goes on. The, the light has dawned on us. And something happens in our heart where not only do we hear the gospel, but we believe it. And, and not only do we hear what Christ has done for us, but we trust Him. So that inward and outward call comes together. And, and thus, those who are the church are by definition the called. To those who are called, which also reminds us that the initiative for our salvation is all of God. We are the called, notice the next, beloved in God the Father. It's astounding. Now, here's the key issue. How is it that a holy God could possibly love sinful humans? How? Without compromising himself, without violating his own holiness. How can he love us? Well, it is because, as that Bible verse you may have learned, first of all, reminds us God is love. But how exactly does God love the called? How? How are we now beloved in God the Father? Well, that is because he loves his son, and we are in his son. And he loves us because of, and he loves us for, and he loves us in his own son. It's the mystery of the gospel, that when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's own perfect righteousness is imputed to us, such that when God the Father looks to us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness. Instead, he sees the righteousness of his own dear son. How precious is that? And because of what Christ has done for us and what God has done for us in Christ, we are now beloved in God the Father. That is just so astounding. What manner of love is it that God should love us? Jude says, as he writes to the church, I write to you as the ones whom God has called. I write to you as the ones who are beloved in God the Father. Little footnote here. There's no reluctance to refer to God as Father. Father. He's described in the Bible over and over again as Father. That doesn't mean that he is male. He doesn't have a body. But it does mean that he reveals himself as Father. He calls himself Father. In the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, pray our Father who is in heaven. In an age of gender confusion and all kinds of political correctness, just recognize the revelation of God in Scripture is that we are to call God Father. We are the called, those beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. How good news is that? We are kept. We're a kept people. We're kept for Jesus Christ. And let me tell you how important that is. Just think about it for a moment. Just be honest with me. If we're not kept for Jesus Christ, then we'll be unkept. Because we can't keep ourselves. Just be honest with yourself. Every single one of us is incapable of keeping ourselves in any way. We can't keep ourselves alive. We can't keep ourselves safe. We certainly can't keep ourselves united to Christ. We're only united to Christ, and invincibly so, because Christ loses none of his own. We are kept by the power of God. We are united to Christ, and those who are united to Christ can never be severed from him. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I by no means cast out. All the Father gives me will come to me, and of those the Father gives me, I will lose nothing. Isn't that precious? 
You're in no danger of being lost, but if it were up to you, you'd lose yourself instantly. We can't keep anything. We can't even keep our attentiveness. We can say, I'm going to think nothing but absolutely holy Godward thoughts. I'm going to open the Scripture, and I'm going to have a sweet time in Scripture, and I'm not going to think anything but spiritual things. And you open, and about three verses later, you're thinking, I'm hungry. <laughs> That's the way it is. We can't even keep ourselves attentive. I had a mom not too long ago tell me, she said, I've got a 13-year-old boy, and I'm afraid he has ADHD. I said, I guarantee you he does. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, number one, he's a boy. He's 13. XY chromosome means... ADHD. I'm not making light of a diagnosis of ADHD. I'm just telling you it is the sinful human predicament, especially showing up in the XY chromosome. I said, you'd like to think that there are people, there are grown men who have no attention deficit problems, but I guarantee you they do. They're plotting war, four-star generals sitting around a table, and they're saying, we're going to move this battalion here. We're going to move this air wing here. We're going to do this. The invasion is going to be, there's a butterfly. That, that's just the... <laughs> That's just the way it works. We can't keep ourselves. We certainly can't keep ourselves to Christ, but he keeps us. He loses nothing. When I was a child, I was scared to death of going to sleep because I could not keep myself when I slept. What I didn't know was that I couldn't keep myself when I was awake. But we're kept for Jesus Christ. That preposition for, it's not just by, we're kept for Jesus Christ. Again, astounding. What does it mean that we're kept for Jesus Christ? Kept for him? Well, just consider the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Look at, look at, look at the entirety of the New Testament revelation. It makes very clear that we as Christ's people are a gift to Christ as his purchased people from God the Father. God the Father in whom we are beloved keeps us for Jesus Christ. Isn't that precious? The Father is not going to lose any in the gift to His Son. We're kept for Jesus Christ. And then the next word of, of sweet exhortation, you're used to this, even as the Apostle Paul will write to the Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He will often re refer to the words grace and peace. But here Jude writes, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I need that. We need that. We need mercy, peace, and love. And we need mercy, peace, and love. Those divine gifts, we need them multiply. We don't need just a little bit more of them. We need a quantum more of them. May they be multiplied amongst us. God's mercy, the peace that passes all understanding, the love of God that surpasses all, may they be multiplied among us. Then he gets to the point. And we're just going to look at this first verse in the main section of Jude's short letter. It's just one verse. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, he says, to write something else. Now, let's think about this. Here he says that he had intended to write a different letter. That's interesting. If anyone wrote us a letter and said, I'd intended, I'd intended to write to you a different letter, but I feel right now in the necessity of writing this letter. It's going to take on a new importance, isn't it? Because the letter writer intended to do something else, and actually we want that letter too. But this letter was more important. He says that he had intended, indeed he was eager, to write to the church about what he calls our common salvation. That, that's the gospel. He had intended to write 
a word of encouragement in the gospel. And we need that. He perhaps had intended to write a, a theological explanation of the gospel. And boy, do we need that. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit took care of all our needs. This is a reminder of the sufficiency of Scripture. We need that exhortation and information about our common salvation, and we're given it in passages such as the book of Romans in, uh, in the entirety of the New Testament. By the time we put the New Testament together, the gospel is defined, the gospel is explained, the, the, the saving events of the gospel are declared, and then the various necessary dimensions of the gospel are made clear to us in order that we would have mature faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a passage such as Romans chapter 3, where in just a short summary of verses, the Apostle Paul explains how the gospel works, how it is that even though we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God loves us to the extent that he demands the full penalty for our sin, and he provides that same penalty. He demands, in accordance with his own righteousness and justice, that full satisfaction, full penalty for sin must be paid. He does not violate his justice by simply minimizing sin. Instead, the very penalty that he demands, he provides in Jesus Christ. He puts Christ forth, we're told in Romans chapter 3, as a propitiation in blood. On the cross, he declared, I am demanding this sacrifice and I am providing this sacrifice. Jesus paid for our sins in full to such an extent that faith and eternal life and the full forgiveness of sins comes to all who believe in his name. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, who confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. To believe in Jesus and repent of sins is to receive the gift of salvation. Not maybe, but always. It's God's promise. And then that passage in Romans 3 ends when we are told that God did so in order to display himself as both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Such a powerful passage. We wouldn't understand the gospel as we are to understand the gospel if we didn't have the book of Romans, and in particular, just those few verses in Romans chapter 3. But we do have them. And we have all the rest of the New Testament Jude had intended with urgency to write with eagerness about our common salvation, but the Holy Spirit instead directed Jude to write a different letter. And that ought to have our attention. Because what could be more important than reminding us of our common salvation? Well, here it is. I wanted to write you about our common salvation, but he says, I found it necessary. It's an important word, necessary. He's driven by a sense of necessity to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One of the most humbling recognitions that comes to anyone who studies the Scripture is how quickly the church became theologically confused and how quickly false doctrine and false teachings emerged within the church. Look at the book of Galatians where Paul will write to them and say, I am appalled, I am shocked that so quickly you would turn away from the gospel. That's a horrifying word, isn't it? Let's just be honest. Let's look at each other in the face here. We desperately do not want to preach, teach, allow, or to follow any other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There's only one gospel that saves. But evidently, in a fallen sinful world, false doctrine turns out to be very problematic and very attractive and far more common than we would like to think. You look at the history of the Christian church, and it's not just in the New Testament. It, it comes very quickly. In every generation, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been called upon to define true Christianity from false Christianity, true gospel from false gospel, true doctrine from false doctrine. It's been a, it's been a perpetual responsibility. And by the way, most of the old heresies just keep cycling in again. The Christian faith comes down to making certain that we are obedient to what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy when he says that we are to maintain the pattern of sound words. You know, when we're talking about Christ, when we're talking about the cross, we're talking about the resurrection, we're talking about the gospel, we need to use even the pattern of sound words because there, there, are, there are things that that can sneak up on us and then we, we've got to be careful and say, well, that's the distinction between being saved and lost. That's the distinction between the gospel that saves and a false gospel. Let, let me just give you one example. Maybe you've had somebody knock on your door and it's never a somebody, it's always a two somebodies, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's usually an elder and a younger and uh, they're going to be the same gender. Uh, but uh, more, more commonly in my experience is an older woman and a younger woman and they knock at the door, and you know, they're there from the Watchtower Society. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses, and, uh, and you need to have a conversation with them. So you have a conversation with them, and uh, the conversation, if, you are, uh, if you're a Christian thinking about what you're doing, you need to get as quickly as possible to the Bible, and go as quickly as possible to the book of John the Gospel of John. It goes quickly as possible to the first verse of the Gospel of John. Now, they will have a Bible with them, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, which is, of course, a corrupted translation. They, they changed the text of Scripture. How do they change it? They changed it where it says that the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Ooh. Pull out your Greek New Testament. Okay, just pull out any faithful English New Testament, and it, you'll notice it's, it's the word was God, not a God. The difference between a God and God is the difference between heaven and hell. The difference between a God and God is the difference between biblical Christianity and a false gospel. And so that's just a pattern of words. And Christians, this is, this is a part of the, the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the Word of God. As, as the Word of God is so faithfully preached here, and, and as you're involved in Bible studies here, and as you give yourself to serious, faithful study of the Scriptures together, then, then here's what happens. You begin to learn this pattern of sound words, and then like fingernails on a chalkboard, when someone gets that pattern wrong, you detect it. It's not true that Jesus was, that the Word was with God and the Word was a God. The Word was God. And, and there, are other, there are other patterns of words that turn out to be extremely important. The early church had to face many of these and, 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 and to deal with them. 
and, and all the way in the Reformation. You just take, fast forward to the 16th century, 16 centuries after the ministry of Christ. And, and there you see the reformers having to clarify that pattern of sound words. It's not enough to say Scripture, grace, faith, Christ. You've got to say Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. Because if it's not followed by alone, it's followed by something else. Sometimes it comes down to listening carefully in a conversation. And you're hearing someone who says, yes, I'm a Christian. And you say, what do you believe? And what they believe is Christian-ish. It's, it's influenced by Christianity. It sounds remarkably like Christianity, but it's not Christianity. In every generation, the church has faced this responsibility, but think about it in our generation. Mercy. We're living in a moment in which a false gospel can appear like fake news all around the world in an instant in 140 or 280 characters. You, 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 there's never been an opportunity both for the gospel to be preached and for false gospels to be preached. Now, there's never been an opportunity for heresy to spread so quickly. And furthermore, we are at a very interesting point in the history of this country, in, in our own society, because we are now at the point of a high-velocity revolution in the entire structure of society such that everything's being redefined, everything's being turned upside down. We can refer to this as the process of secularization. Our culture is increasingly secular. And what that means more than anything else is that the authority of Christianity and the Christian truth claims and a biblical understanding of reality and morality is receding fast and being replaced with a secular alternative. And it's not just being, it's not just receding, it's being pushed out by those who claim that in order for human beings to be liberated, they've got to be liberated from the strictures of biblical Christianity. If, if you go back in time just a few generations in American culture, you don't have to go back a few generations, go back a generation. The society and the Christian church agreed with the definition of marriage, that it is and can only be the union of a man and a woman. And by the way, that has been true for millennia. No human civilization has been confused about that until very recently. But now the entire society is being reordered with a coercive morality and all the regulations and policies and tenure requirements and hiring issues and, and, the, the, and the force of Hollywood and, and, of course, modern academia is all coming to coerce a reversal of the entire moral system. Have you noticed how quickly we have become those people? In our society, we're the people who say marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Just to take one example. And, and it's not just because we believe God's a cosmic killjoy who just wants to say that because he will limit it to that in order to limit human happiness. No, we believe that because that's God's creative intention in his righteous and holiness and in his love for us in the beginning. And he's given us marriage as a union of a man and a woman as the basic bedrock of civilization without which no civilization can thrive, no, no society can well operate. That indeed, the, the gift of marriage is a union of a man and a woman 
defined rightly and honored by society is necessary for human flourishing. Because what's right in creation is right because it's to God's glory and to our good. But we're in a situation in which now to hold to what every society throughout human history has held to is the definition of marriage, is the union of a man and a woman, we're now told we're on the wrong side of history. Well, the church started out on the wrong side of history. We're on the right side of eternity. On the day of judgment, being found on the right side of history is going to be deadly. Just think about that. If you're trying to calibrate your life to be on the right side of history, number one, you can't keep up. There's no one more terrified right now than a liberal of 10 years ago because they can't keep up. No, seriously, they got tenure in the university. They thought they were set. They'd written their work on deconstruction and postmodernism and all the rest. And the next thing they know, they got 18 years old who are showing up wearing Chairman Mao t-shirts. You can't keep up. But the other problem with being on the right side of history is the history comes to a decisive end and everything historical burns in the judgment of God. Only that which is Christ's will remain. Jude says that he, he writes appealing to the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Appealing. That, let's not skip over that. An appeal has moral force. It's, not, it's more than a request. You know, you can say, I can request this, you can request that. Well, a request is one thing. An appeal is something else. Appeal means it's coming with moral urgency. This is the right thing to do. I desperately need you to do this. I'm appealing to you to do this. The Apostle Paul will use this kind of language, for instance, in Romans chapter 12, where he says, I, I remember it in the old King James, as I memorize it, I beseech ye, brethren, I make this appeal to you. Jude says, I write appealing to you to contend for the faith. What does it mean to contend? Or as, as you know, to hold fast. It, it, means, it means making the argument, defending the truth, holding fast to it regardless of the circumstances. It has public consequences, which is to say, it, it means that the church has a responsibility for the public declaration of the gospel, the public defense of the gospel, the public defense of Christian truth. It also comes down to the private, including that apostolic commandment to us that we're to be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us with gentleness and with respect. But to give that answer. We're, all, we're to be always ready to give that answer, to contend for the faith. This also means in this contending, grounding in Christian truth. So let me speak to the parents in this room. Your responsibility in your home is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and you better do it with urgency, moms and dads. You, you had better with urgency train your children in the Scripture. You'd better with urgency make them little theologians. You better with urgency preach the gospel to them and live the gospel before them in your home to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then beyond the home, this is, this is the responsibility of the church. And, th and that's what you're doing right now. Not just because I am preaching this text, but because this is what happens every time the body of Christ gathers together and hears the teaching of the Word of God and receives it and obeys it. You are together contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But it also means when you hear that pattern of unsound words, you interrupt. You contend for the faith. 
You defend that pattern of sound words. You do what Paul says to Timothy. You guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. To contend for the faith. Now, that's important too. Just as we talked about the difference between saying that Jesus is a God or saying that Jesus is God. So it makes all the difference in the world if we believe that Christianity is the faith or a faith. One of the most insidious challenges to us is the understanding that faith stands on its own. You have people describe themselves as people of faith. I would refer to this as the Oprahfication of American theology. Because I heard her say over and over again, this is a person of faith, he's a person of faith, she's a person of faith. You know what that means? Nothing. Biblically, everybody's a person of faith. It's just a matter of what kind of faith that is. The point is that we don't believe we're justified by faith. We believe we're justified by faith in Christ. We, we don't believe in justification by faith in faith. We don't have any faith in faith any more than we have confidence in ourselves. We have faith in Christ. I write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Some years back, I had an invitation to spend a better part of an afternoon with the Prince of Wales. I was in a group with others, religious leaders. They got chosen. I don't know how. But I was invited to this meeting, and we were each asked to, uh, in the presence of the Prince of Wales, direct two answers to two questions which he asked in advance. Number one, what's gone wrong with the world? And number two, what can be done about it? Thank you. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> I'm on it. I got answers. But... This is, the, the, this is Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, who, by the way, was a very respectful and incredibly dignified person. Um, he was very gracious in conversation. I think he's probably heard just about everything, and he heard just about everything in that room, as a matter of fact. But nonetheless, uh, this is the same Prince Charles who had given a bit earlier an interview with a British journalist by the name of Jonathan Dimbleby. Now, if I were writing a novel and coming up with a name for a British journalist, I couldn't do any better than Jonathan Dimbleby. But Jonathan Dimbleby did this interview with Prince Charles, and he asked him about the coronation oath. Uh, and, and, and Prince Charles said that he was going to receive the coronation oath. By the way, he's still waiting. He's waited longer than any human being. And it doesn't look like his mother is in any eagerness for him to become king anytime soon. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, he said that when he is coronated, that he wants the coronation oath no longer to include the title defender of the faith, but he said rather defender of faith. He said the faith that lives in each of us. Well, yeah, uh, that's my sophisticated response. I mean, defender of faith? That title got assigned to the British crown because the Pope gave it to Henry VIII. One of the strange moves in royal history. That was when Henry VIII had written a work attacking the Reformation and defending the Pope. Pope thought that was very good, gave the British sovereign the title, Henry VIII, the title defender of the faith. Only the Pope during that time could give that title. Henry VIII was glad to have it, put it in his length of titles, which is longer than a page. Okay, hold on to that. 
Shortly thereafter, the king and the pope had quite a disagreement. Some of you know the story. You can fast forward five wise later. <laughs> and Henry VIII actually started the Church of England because the pope wouldn't grant him a divorce from his first wife and all the rest. So the pope probably has never regretted giving the title Defender of the Faith to anyone more than he regretted giving it to Henry VIII. But all of Henry VIII's successors have held it until Prince Charles says he doesn't want it. And it's the perfect symbol of the modern or postmodern confusion of our day. But you'll notice here that the phrase is the faith. Jude says, I appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's, it's a definite faith. Christianity is not a mood. It's not an intuition. It's not an attitude. It is a truth. It produces an attitude. It produces character. It produces virtues. But at its center, it is a declared public truth that is eternally true. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. The faith, the pattern of sound words that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's powerful. We're not waiting for anything new. We're, we're not looking for the 67, 68, and 69 books of Scripture. In fact, the Scripture says, uh, woe and condemnation unto anyone who would try to take a word away or to add a word to it. We're not looking for new and improved Christianity. We want the Christianity preached by the apostles as they received it from Christ. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? We don't want a new Christianity. We just want Christianity, and it's unchanged and unchanging. Just recognize how revolutionary and radical that is, because you don't want a doctor who's practicing first century medicine. You don't, trust me. <laughs> you want antibiotics. You want anesthesia. You want the doctor to wash his hands between surgeries. None of that happened in the first century. They didn't even know what was connected to what, doing what. I want lots of shiny certificates on the wall <laughs> from places I recognize. I don't want theology from Harvard, but I'll take medicine from Harvard. But you look at that and you, and you recognize that when we're thinking about contending for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints, one of the perpetual challenges to the Christian church is that people are always trying to come up with the updated this. Or, or they'll even say of the Bible, you know, the Bible's not enough, so we have something new. Science and health were the key to the Scriptures. And Mary Baker Eddy, or the Book of Mormon or something. They'll say, here's, a, here's another testament of Jesus Christ. Guess what? There is no other testament of Jesus Christ. We are following the apostolic pattern of Christianity, and we do so because we're limited by Scripture. Once for all, that is so liberating. But it's also radical because once for all, when the, when the people around us hear you, are you telling me seriously that your goal is to understand Let's just say the way, the way the society was at. You want to understand religion the way that the people you call apostles understood religion in the first century? Yep, absolutely. That's my entire goal. My goal is that I would never say anything in the pulpit that the apostles wouldn't say or at least nod in approval to. You know, that's my goal. 
That is so countercultural. But think about it. If the gospel saves and saves sinners, it has to be the same gospel all the time. If Jesus saves, then it has to be this Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're not wondering what God's disposition is to us, and He's going to change the plan because we are told that He is Himself unchanged and unchanging. As He says in the Scripture, I do not change. And you know what comes next? Therefore, you are not destroyed. Oh, that's really good news. We don't have to worry that God's going to change His mind. We don't have to worry that God's going to change the gospel. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So this is our responsibility. This is, this is the responsibility of every generation of Christians. And in our generation, we really are facing, we're really facing some challenges that even previous generations of Christians didn't face in the same form. We're the people who are going to be told we're on the wrong side of history simply by the definition of marriage or our understanding of sexual morality, which is revealed in Scripture. We, we come to understand that even though the society is changing just about everything, we have, to, we have to evaluate everything according to the unchanged and unchanging Word of God. We don't even know exactly what we're going to face in 10 years or 10 months or 10 minutes. But we're also told in Scripture we're not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Rather, we're just to hold to the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, knowing that it saves. All this, of course, makes no sense if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord. All this makes no sense if you are not counted amongst those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And so we dare not end any other place this morning than by declaring the gospel that we know to be true and unchanging. The gospel that promises that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for your sins on the cross and was raised by the power of God on the third day, if, if you believe in him, then as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And all that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. And of those the Father gives him, he will lose nothing. I'll stake my life on that for time and for eternity. It's the message the apostles preached. It's the message I preach to you today. And so long as the Lord tarries, it is what the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ will preach forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so unspeakably thankful for every word of Scripture, for every single syllable, for every sentence. Father, thank you in these short sentences of three verses from Jude. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us. Father, we pray that because of our reading and preaching and hearing your word today, your church will be more faithful in contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if so, it will not be for our glory, but for yours. And we pray for it to be so as we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.